Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, coming to you remotely as usual these days with uh, my colleague, Frank Washkirk, who's the executive editor of PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me on this week. It wouldn't be the same without you, sir. And we've got a brilliant guest this week. It's Michael Smith, who's uh, the CMO of NPR. And really pleased to have you on the show, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's really fun to be with you guys. Yeah. So uh, we'll talk to Michael about his role. Um, it's not just marketing. He's doing he's jack of all trades by the sounds of it, doing all sorts of good stuff at NPR. And then we'll get into the week's stories. Uh, there was a debate this week or was there a debate this week? I don't know. But anyway, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the uh, Merriam-Webster interesting um, activation it did around the debate. Uh, McDonald's has hired uh, a new uh, person to oversee the communications and other functions. The CDC has hired Golin for some uh, PR and comm support, as has J&J, so a good week for Golin. We'll talk about Home Depot's viral skeleton. And uh, we'll talk about Ed, Richard Edelman. We had him on Coffee Break, uh, the best-known PR person in the world, so we'll chat about that. And, Frank, we've probably got to talk about fat bears as well, haven't we? Uh, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to talking about fat bears. And okay. <laughs> Frank will give us the full yeah, lowdown on that. for real. It's been, it's been the big uh, topic in our, in our newsroom as well as the debate. But, anyway, Michael, let's uh, start with you. Um I think you started your role. Did you say you started your role pretty much just before the lockdown? So you had an interesting six months by the sound of it. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I started in March and uh, it was a couple of weeks in normalcy, but uh, quickly uh, turned into, <laughs> turned, to, turned into the most challenging six months probably for all of us. Yeah, for sure. And you're based in New York. Will you, would you, and you were going to move to DC. Do you think you will now or is, is, is everything just remote from now on? Well, I think we'll be remote for a while. You know, I mean, as the CDC has said that uh, enclosed spaces are probably the riskiest places to be um, with uh, until we have a widespread adoption of, of a vaccine. So I think offices are going to come back very, very slowly. But I, I'm excited about getting back or getting down to D.C. because we, we've got an office uh, with a thousand people in Washington. And uh, if, if you've ever been to the NPR office, there's just a magic about the energy in the newsroom with you know hundreds of journalists, uh, different desks, and uh, putting out you know the two most popular news magazines every day, and and you know and thirty different podcasts. And I mean it's 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 just a, a, an exciting place. Yeah, you can't beat the energy in a newsroom. I, I really believe that. I think um, you know for young journalists, that's where I learned how to be a journalist. You listen to how the experienced folks did it and you hear how they do their phone calls and you just get a buzz out of the, the bouncing of ideas off with each other. I loved, I used to love hearing the whole newsroom tapping away copy near deadline time. That really, it really does. You're right. gets the, get, you get a buzz out of it. So you've had a sort of career in various parts of broadcasting and advertising and you've landed at NPR. Tell us, you know, just for those who don't know so much about NPR, it's an unusual media organization. Give us the sort of very the, the brief skinny on NPR and, and its place in the market. Yeah, you know, NPR, you have to go back to the 1960s and the Great Society programs of President Johnson. And, and one of the, the, the uh, final acts that was signed was the 
uh, Public Broadcasting Act, and it was to set aside uh, some government resources to provide for media that basically fills the gaps that commercial media doesn't fill. And so the initial act was all television at the very end, at the 11th hour, they, there was somebody cut, uh, set aside for radio. <laughs> and that's kind of how NPR was, uh, was born. And NPR's mission is, has always been to just create a more informed public and just to make people uh, just smarter about events and ideas and culture and just make better citizens out of people. And, um, through radio, initially through radio programming, and then as the years have evolved, uh, we've, we've gotten into on-demand audio and uh, into streaming audio, and actually now we're even into video on, on, on YouTube. But but um, we do it through partnership with 264 uh, local radio stations, uh, public radio stations around the country, and basically what NPR does is provides two anchor what we call anchor news magazine shows morning edition and all things considered morning editions in the morning all things considered in the afternoon which fill the majority of the schedules of most local public radio stations and then we do a few other shows in the midday and the weekends as well to fill out their schedules uh, what's probably the most remarkable thing about NPR in recent years has been the growth of the podcast business um, which really didn't exist before 2005 uh, and we now have eight out of the top 20 podcasts in the country. Uh, and it's really become the way, especially people in Gen Z and uh, millennials may, may actually mostly know the NPR brand because of our podcast, whether it's a TED Radio Hour or How I Built This or you know, Planet Money or um, Up First. Uh, so uh, and then and then finally, we, we uh, for a, a, a younger audience, uh, we become a really big hit on YouTube with our Tiny Desk concerts, which is a, a series of um, live performances by art by all kinds of artists, and it's become a super popular thing among uh, Gen Zs. Yeah, so your funding is a lot of you know NPR can get controversial because everyone says, oh, it's government funding. Why is the government spending money on that? But I think you'll you'll explain that there's only a, a certain percentage of of your funding comes from uh, government money, and um, you've You've, you do take um, commercial revenue, but you do it in a specific way because you have to strike that balance. You are a nonprofit, but then you obviously you want to stay in business and you want to develop the business. So how do you how do you balance that and how do you counter the sort of uh, negative message messaging around the funding of NPR? Yeah, you know, I think there's a misconception, although the, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was set up by the uh, Public Broadcasting Act in the late 60s. Uh, there was money set aside to allocate to public TV and to public radio. Uh, but, you know, that um, amount of money has grown very s uh, slightly since the original <laughs> launch 50 years ago. And actually, it's about $460 million a year uh, uh, you know, that goes to public media. So the majority of the money that your local public radio station generates is from member donations. It's probably why you hear, you know, the member drives throughout the year, and then through philanthropy, uh, and then finally through sponsorship sales um, of local companies that that want to buy sponsorship uh, messages in programming. So the the uh, government allocation is actually a tiny part for most stations. And then for NPR, the way we're we're funded is that we receive license fees from stations to. Uh, rebroadcast our program or to, to broadcast our programming and then we get money from philanthropy and then we also um, sell uh, sponsorship uh, opportunities in, in our programming so when you put it all together any money that comes directly from the federal government is actually less than uh, two percent of our total 
uh, revenue at this point. So it it it's, it is a misconception that the, that I mean because maybe because we're called national public radio, people think that we're like the BBC or something where we're yeah. Um, but but it's very different here. Most of our support comes from actually. I mean, it's a cliche, but from from members like you. Yeah, the BBC is uh, from my home country is predominantly government funded, and uh, they got the and uh, and that becomes an issue as well, especially at times like this. Um, and um, it became an issue when they started making data commercial arm that made quite a lot of money too. So it's not this debate is not uh, sort of confined to the states. But you were talking earlier about the sort of. Uh, products that are really attracting a younger audience. And you you were saying earlier that, that you really have been trying to diversify your audience because a lot of those donations and, and the philanthropy comes from a certain, you know, uh, certain type of person who's obviously got a bit more money that can, that can um, donate and it comes from a certain era. So talk us, talk us through that and how you might have diversified the audience, especially in, you know, Throughout through the events of this summer, when um, the focus on racial diversity and racial injustice has been much more top of the agenda. Yeah, one of the things that that we have, uh, I think, has been a challenge for us has been how diverse our audience is relative to the United States as a whole. I think when NPR were started in the 1970s, we were more in sync with the with the demographics of the country. The people who listened to NPR and actually started NPR were were people that kind of came out of the 60s and were young and progressive and very diverse. And I think what's happened is over time, our audience has aged and uh, and become more upscale and, and less diverse. <laughs> and it's um, they've been extremely loyal and very supportive. And, and I think you know, we're one of the most trusted news brands in, in the country. But we've got out of, out of sync with where America is. You know, our audience is about 25% diverse and America is now 40% diverse. So our big focus right now is how do we uh, make our audience more reflective of, of, of what America is. You know, we are called, we are called national public radio and the public part um, needs to be, you know, needs to be in, in, in sync. So uh, I think the events of the recent months have also highlighted the need uh, for there to be, more equity and more honesty about the systemic uh, challenges that you know, ca- cause uh, under the, under- the underrepresentation of diverse voices. Um, so that's something that uh, is a key focus for us now. Is that something, have you got anything specific you can tell us about that, that you're thinking of launching or enhancing? You talk, I mean, I don't. I know podcasts aren't just for young people. I think uh, they're, they're universally popular, aren't they? But some of the elements you described earlier did sound like they had more of a youthful bent or a, a more diverse uh, um, focus. Yeah, you know, the, it, it's it's on two fronts that, that we're, being, we're able to diversify uh, and, and bring more diverse people in, into our audience. One is with our traditional legacy radio content. If, um, if you listen to Morning Edition or All Things Considered or weekend radio shows, you, you'll notice that a great increase in the diversity of sources and voices uh, who are sourced and interviewed on those shows and the hosts. You know, the, the ho- we have diverse hosts for all of our news magazines now. Uh, so that's our you know, the first layer. And then the second layer is our digital content, which is led by the podcasts. And we know our research tells us that uh, that audience is younger. And we know that uh, diverse listeners who come to NPR, they tend to be introduced to NPR through our podcast. So we have podcasts like Code Switch, which is the most popular podcast in the country on uh, that covers race, uh, all about race and 
and, uh, and um, race and culture. And we have a show called It's Been a Minute, which is a, a sort of news pop culture talk show hosted by an African-American, uh, which is also it's, um, uh, super popular right now. We have a new show called Louder Than a Riot that we just launched, or she's launching uh, on October 6th, which is about the intersection of hip hop culture and the, and the criminal justice um, system, which is, um, we're, we're super excited about the opportunity for that to bring in an audience of music lovers. Uh, and, and then we have content, to, you know, I mentioned the Tiny Desk Concert series that we do uh, on YouTube, which has been growing you know, like crazy. We had a, um, a video a couple of weeks ago featuring um, uh, the, the Korean pop group BTS that racked up like 10 million views, I think, you know, within the first couple of days. So yeah, that's that's guaranteed traffic when you feature them, isn't it? <laughs> Fact, Frank, we should do that. Um, yeah, it, just finally, um, you know, we see media now is very is very febrile atmosphere. There's a lot of accusations of fake news. You know, you've got Fox at one end, you've got MSNBC at the other end. You, you know, NPR has been had accusations of ideological bias. What's the What's the the mission, if you like, or the the principles? Are you, do you try to be nonpartisan? What's what is what's the sort of um, uh, thrust of, of the of the product, if you like, overall? Yeah, I think that that's one of the distinguishing factors for us. You know, as media has become more polarized, we really try to stick with being all about facts and the truth, and and being a place where you can go for reliable, trusted information. So we don't take sides. Uh, it's tricky in a, in a polarized world, though, because you're going to have half the people think if you go down the middle, half the people think that you're too too um, liberal and half the people are going to think you're too conservative. So, uh, you know, that's a challenge. But there's a growing audience of people who want to cut through that. You know, I hear from a lot of people. They say that in order to understand, like, what really happened on the debates, I have to watch a little bit of Fox News, but then I have to watch a little bit of MSNBC and then I kind of average them out. And the great thing is, if you listen to NPR after the, you know, our after show uh, about the debates, you would have heard a a really balanced conversation about what happened. Um, so, uh, yeah, never been more need for that, and um, we got to, we got to, we've all got to uh, do better on that. And uh, that's where we try and do that at PR Week, obviously on a smaller scale than NPR. But yeah, great stuff, Michael, and um, good to chat to you. And we'll we'll get you contributing to the stories, Frank. Um, the debate. Um, I know about you. I was I was kind of nervous before the debate. It was almost like a big sporting event. And then at the end, I was sort of anxious or just sort of I didn't really know what to think. How did you feel and what was your take on it? Well, I, I would agree with you. And I, I would also say that the hour and a half, it was it either flew by if you, you know, enjoy uh, watching this sort of thing and analyzing it, you know, like it's a sporting event. Or, you know, I think if you're just a, a normal, normal person, average voter, you, you were probably so frustrated by the whole thing, it might have felt like an eternity. So, um, you know, I think there's two ways of looking at it there. Um, but, you know, clearly, judging by the early polls, it seems like a lot of the people who watch it came away more frustrated than anything. Yeah, I think, um, I mean... The other thing was you could you felt like switching off after fifteen minutes because you just thought this is just a, this is just nonsense right it's, uh, the, the the moderator was out didn't have any control it was just a sort of shouting match um, and you know well the, I would um I I actually 
I, I would just say two things about that. And that's that, yeah, I, I think you did get that sense. But if you look at the ratings, it's really fascinating in that there was an expectation that people are going to watch the first half hour and then some of them are going to pull away. But the ratings were incredibly consistent through it's the hour. Stuck with it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is is really interesting, and in that a lot of people uh, clearly replied to polls talking about how frustrated they were, but watched it anyway. Yeah. Um, it, so yeah, it didn't reflect well. I don't think on the country. I mean, or its image. Uh, I think a lot of people would look at it and think, "Wow, is this the best we can do?" And you know, certainly internationally, people um, think that. Uh, Michael, what was your take on it? And um, and it's always pointed as a sporting style analogy. Who won? Who, you know, Hannity was saying, well, this this is the way it should be. We should be more aggressive now and, you know, have at it, you know, just put them in a boxing ring. Is that is that what we've come down to in, in terms of social discourse these days? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a sign of the, uh, of the times uh, that uh, things have been loud. Everything's been louder the last four years. And I think a lot of it is obviously because of the president's style. But, you know, the president was a product of a culture, you know, the, whether it's reality television or uh, social media. And, uh, you know, th- there's been a, a coarsening of discourse definitely over the last you know, um, five or 10 years. And I think we're just seeing uh, the, 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 um, you know, the crescendo or I guess the whatever, you know, the, the, the climax of it right now. So. Uh, I, I, I thought well, what, what happened was that uh, the, the president took a strategic uh, uh, risk. It was like a Hail Mary in the sense that he's far behind in the polls. Um, he knows that uh, there is a perception of Joe Biden being uh, in, you know, maybe not as sharp because of his age. And so why not rat, try to rattle him and see if you can get a big gaffe or you know, dramatic moment out of out of the night that can really move the polls and close the gap. Because if he'd just gone in and just had a more genteel debate, he would have walked away with the polls still being, you know, eight to 10 percent, eight percent, you know, lead lead for Biden. And uh, what difference does that make? You know, it's kind of like a like a like a like a, like a hockey team when they pull their goalie at the end of the game, you know, or a soccer yeah. team when they pull their goalie because he's only got four five weeks left. So. It's no time for you know, yeah. Except this time he pulled the goalie in the first minute is what it's it's a great analogy, that really is. Yeah. No, but, yeah, yeah go on, I think Frank. you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean that that was definitely the, the strategy was to to knock him uh, you know, knock him off his feet early and, and he clearly just, just took it way too far to the point of I think just turning off a lot of people. I mean, I think if you look at the polls and you think a lot of the more in-depth polling talks about how where Trump has really bled support over the past couple of months is is among uh, people in the suburbs and and women in the suburbs, especially. I think if you watch that debate, you you came away from it thinking, I, I don't really see how he gained ground. Uh, or, or gained any ground back. Um, I, I, the other thing about it is I, I might be in the minority on this, but I, I actually felt bad for Wallace. Um, I, I don't, I mean, other than, you know, screaming back at the top of his lungs, I'm not, I'm not totally sure what he was supposed to do. But I, I just wonder in future debates, are we going to get to a place where they are told, the participants are told, you have 
two minutes per answer and one minute per reply. And they literally do just cut their microphones as soon as they hit that point, you know, thought, and don't let them interrupt. I thought he should have been stronger from the start. I thought he lost it. He lost it after 30 seconds, you know, mm. and he didn't set the ground rules strongly enough from that point. I don't, because I don't think he expected what happened. You know, he, I mean, yeah. I think we all probably suspected it would be a fiery session, but I don't think anyone suggests supposed it would go quite like that quite from the start you know it was it was really sort of all guns blazing from the start um i thought biden did much the better his better work when he just looked at the camera and addressed the nation and that was something that i think worked well for him that that really president trump didn't address the nation at all did he 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 was really just trying to crush his opponent which i guess is his style you know that's that's what he does but when when biden looked at the camera and, and addressed the nation he was very effective but he did have several moments when you just thought wow he's he's you know he's he's not coherent he's not putting words together well he's losing the thread he's getting numbers wrong um i think that the incidents that really caught you know the, the headlines was when uh, biden told shut up man you know that's become a meme hasn't he and I, and I think that probably that probably worked okay for him. But then some of the other, you know, when it got abusive, maybe people would were almost equating Biden with Trump, which, which, um, uh, and then of course there was the incident where President Trump refused to uh, disown white supremacy, which has really stayed in the headlines and he still refused to do that. And uh, Michael, what did you think of that? Did you think he misheard a little bit and uh, or do you think it was you know that's that's his views he's a you know he's essentially a, somewhat of a racist shall we say at the point <laughs> yeah you know it's been a, it's been one of the issues that's been a challenge in journalism this summer is do you, do as a journal as a news organization do we call someone a racist uh, which is making a judgment or uh, do we report facts which are based which is just to report the, the actions of a person and let the audience decide. So, you know, we, we lean more to the side of the facts. So it's, you know, it's clear that the president was, did not want to disavow the Proud Boys group, but what's unclear is whether he was aware of who that group is or what, what they are. His statements, I guess, after the debate were that he didn't, had never heard of them. Uh, and just thought it was, they were talking about some group of people that were supporters of his. Uh, so it's hard to know, you know whether that's a lie or that's tr true. All we can report on is this is what happened and let people make the, you know, make judgments um, uh, about it. So, you know, um, my, you know, yeah, my, I have my own personal opinion, but, but, but from a factual point of view, all I can say is that, uh, yeah, is, is what what we saw on the screen. Yeah, Frank, the Proud Boys organization certainly came out a winner in terms of awareness of their organization, which is probably is which is obviously not a good thing because it's a it's a disgust it's got disgusting views. Yeah, I would I would say two other things on this, and that's that I, I we talked about earlier the strategy that that Trump and his team went into this campaign with or went into this event with, but. I think that them, you know, wh whether it's calling Biden senile or, you know, 
uh, insinuating that that he he couldn't leave his home in Delaware because he wasn't physically capable of doing it, which they did for months on end. And and you know you saw Brett Hume do it the other night, and their allies in the media do it. When you do when you lower the bar for your opponents so low like that. The fact that, you know, and, and personally, I did not think Biden had a great debate. I think he, he did well, but I didn't, I didn't think he blew the roof off. But when, when your opponent then goes and, and, you know, just coherently and calmly answers questions, you know, you make them look like a winner. And so that was, that was a poor strategy for months, too. I also think that Trump did not do himself any favors by bringing up the issues that Biden's son had with drugs, because I, I think, you know, look, everybody's family or group of friends, you know, there's, there's, has somebody in it who has had a problem with drugs or alcohol. And I, I don't know that being that critical of a family member like that in such a harsh way is going to work for him in any way whatsoever. I think that was a lot of people are going to see that very negatively. Yeah, um, I think Biden almost thought, I think he almost went into thinking, well, families are kind of off limits because let's be honest, there are plenty of uh, bullets he could have fired on that uh, front himself. And then, of course, um, with his son and his other son who's who's died and was a war hero, um, it's very sensitive. It's very sensitive. And I thought that was effective when he looked at the camera uh, and talked about his son and said, yes, he had a drug problem, just like many others um, in this country, right? We've, you know, we've got an opioid epidemic around the country. And, and, and again, those were the, type, the points where I thought he did resonate. But you're right, he did, you know, he, he, he did have some uh, moments where he was uh, not, not so strong. And, um, and the president's sort of tactics do work with his, with his base. So, you know, it was it's a calculated risk. A bit, so just to finish on this, um, do we think the next two debates will take place and, and what needs to happen um, to make them more productive, if you like, as, as a debate? Um, what do you think, uh, Frank? If, if I make a prediction, it might be outdated by the time this podcast is, is live tomorrow because, you know, there's, he's all, the president is already, you know, bantering a bit about rule, debate rule changes on Twitter and, you know, why would I do anything I didn't agree to? So, um uh, you know, watch the space. I don't. I don't think any of us know right now. Mm. Well, he yeah. agreed to rules and then he didn't stick to them. So, yeah. what do you think, yeah. Mike? Yeah, I think that um, the Biden's between a rock and a hard place on this because if he did, says he doesn't want to participate because the first one was so you know unfair, um, he's going to look weak to a lot of people. And if he does participate trump's probably gonna do the same thing again so <laughs> yeah so. yeah yeah you're right there absolutely right i think biden he had that habit of just sort of laughing you know like oh you know you know david Miliband used to do it in the uk and it, it doesn't come over well uh, you should just keep a poker face i think sometimes when the when the, some of the outrageous statements are coming out and then just respond and rebut but uh, it's very difficult you know when you if someone just continually talks over you it really is difficult to uh to get your points over and it, it uh, puts you off your stride which is obviously the intention but yeah okay well we'll see what happens and it'll be interesting to see the deputy um president presidential debate um vice presidential debate next uh, next week frank there was one merriam webster did a, an interesting thing just talk us through that quickly 
Well, you know, I think it, it's important to point out first too. I think a lot of brands uh, avoided this debate and avoided yeah. getting involved with it just because it's so it's so contentious right now. And I think this was too hot to touch for a lot of folks. Um, Miriam Webster, the dictionary uh, company, found a good way into it by uh, posting its 30 mo- most search for words during the debate. Um, and they, they posted them on Twitter. Interesting way of getting into this in a non-controversial way. So, you know, good for them. Yeah. Okay, let's get into some PR stories. McDonald's has hired Katie Fallon. What's the, what's the role, Frank? Where did she come from and what's her remit? Yeah, she until very recently has been at Hilton, but she's moving to McDonald's to become EVP and Chief Global Impact Officer. And she's leading a a newly created global impact team. That team is going to be focused on purpose. Uh, She's reporting straight up to the president and CEO of the chain, and uh, she's going to be overseeing the team that includes communications, government relations, sustainability, uh, oversight of corporate philanthropy and ESG. Um, now reporting up to her uh, are going to be VP of Global Communications, Michael Gonda, uh, VP of U.S. Communications, David Tovar, and a bunch of other uh, department heads. Okay. And um, related to McDonald's is Golin, which has been its agency for something like 60 years. Golin's on a bit of a tear at the moment. They've won a couple of nice pieces of work this week. Yeah. Yeah, they have. Um, they have won a really good piece of work from Johnson & Johnson, which is uh, handling their North American skin health PR. So that's um, brands including Neutrogena, Clean & Clear, Aveeno in the U.S., um, and some work in Canada as well. Okay. And uh, the CDC? And let, me just in, oh, let me just interrupt you, too, to make an update on the Hilton story. So Hilton just today... Um, named a replacement for its top communications role. And it's actually going to get put under Matthew Schuyler, who is, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Matthew Schuyler, uh, who is their former head of HR. And he's going to move into the role of chief administrative officer. And part of his responsibility is going to be communications. Okay. That's an interesting structure from a company that's clearly had a rough time over the last six months with uh, the lockdown and lack of tourism. So, yeah. And did you talk through the CDC one with Golan? CDC. um, They have brought on Golan for media and social media support for its Center for Global Health, which is sort of the the outward-facing part of the CDC that, you know, it focuses on its international efforts um, and and the things it does outside of the U.S. borders. Uh, some of this is going to be media surveillance and, report, uh, and reporting, analytics, things like that, but also some, you know, kind of classic PR support, you know, uh, talking about strategy implementation and, and things like that, working with spokespeople and leadership, interview training, you know, things of that nature. Got it. Michael, in terms of PR professionals interacting with NPR, what would your advice be to them? Um, Would they just treat them in like any other media company or are there certain things uh, that they need to be aware of when they're pitching ideas? Uh, I think that, that, yeah, like any other media company, I think understanding that independence, editorial independence is very important to our brand. Uh, It's one of the reasons why we're one of the most trusted media outlets. So, uh, if you, oh, and, and the other thing is that our mission is to really create a more informed public. So if, if there's if there's a way to 
uh, offers information and stories that can make people smarter and, and make people more informed about our world, uh, I think there'll be more interest in those uh, uh, than others. Pictures, yeah. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. Um, Frank, why is Home Depot um, doing something with skeletons? Is that to do with Halloween or what's, what's going on there? So Home Depot, uh, evidently, and I think anybody who knows me knows I'm not a big Halloween person, but evidently Home <laughs> Depot is selling a home decoration that is a gigantic skeleton. It's like 12 feet tall. Uh, it costs $300, which is more than I'd be willing to spend on Halloween decorations, but hey, to each uh, their own. Anyway, so this thing has well, taken off. Brooklyn, Brooklyn apartments are not necessarily that conducive to over-the-top Halloween decorations, are they? Very, very true. Very true. Anyway, so um, this skeleton has sort of become a social media star on its own, you know, um, it had been going viral on Twitter, and there was a TikTok video of uh, Home Depot employees trying to set one up and kind of, kind of failing miserably just because of how big it is, and and you know things like that. Anyway, this it's a twelve foot. There's no shame in that. It's a twelve foot tall skeleton. Of course. Anyway, so it's got a million views. The TikTok video does anyway. So um, it's sold out. It's completely sold out um from home depot and what i think is interesting about this is is they had this thing going viral and they didn't you know they didn't put any of their own team on it or they didn't you know put any kind of push behind it because they it, it they're just letting it go viral on its own and i i could see that being really smart you know uh, we hear so much about how people value authenticity uh, this seems like it could have been the right move for them so they stuck to the bare bones of the story, is that right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes kept that's it. it. Kept, well it or, kept it organic. Um, well done. Michael, you mentioned uh, the BTS thing going viral earlier. Would, the, is that, would that be one of the most viral pieces of content uh, you've done at NPR, or are there other ones that spring to mind? Yeah, there was one that we did this uh, late this summer, which was around 4th of July, and we assembled – uh, descendants of Frederick Douglass, you know, the, the great uh, mm -hmm. um, um, American um, civil rights um, warrior. And uh, we had uh, great, great grandchildren, great, great grandchildren of his all read a speech that he had given back in the 19th century about uh, America and its founding and the obviously the unfairness and the inequity of, of slavery. But the, the, just the poignancy of, of seeing his descendants, uh, you know, um, um, 150 years later, uh, reading this speech uh, in a five-minute film just became a viral sensation when we released it on July 4th. And within, I'd say within 24 hours, it had over 6 million views. Oh, fantastic. And, and without any real, you know, about any marketing, it just became one of those things. Um, so, so um yeah, that's great stuff. It's the, you know, that's the positive side of social media, isn't it? That you can actually get great content out there quickly and really get to a lot of people and, and do some, you know, get some great messaging over. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, Frank, let's finish with Edelman. Uh, Richard Edelman, the uh, president and CEO, was uh, on uh, Coffee Break this week. Uh, very interesting interview, and he covered a lot of issues, private and business. What were your biggest takeaways? So... I, you know, I think that anybody who, who has covered Richard and um, 
you know, it knows he, he's so full of energy. And uh, I, <laughs> I just kind of imagine him in the early <laughs> weeks of the pandemic, just, just almost not knowing, you know, without all the travel and not being able to go to an office and not being able to, you know, talk to people and, and things like that. I, I just have such a hard time <laughs> imagining him yeah. in, in this environment where he's confined to his apartment every day. And that was something that, uh, <laughs> that, ju- uh, that jumped out to me for sure. Um, you know, I, I think what he describes to, you know, about what he calls his employees finest hour in, in adjusting to the new environment. I, I, I I'm sure that's true, what he said, and I think that's true at a lot of agencies. I think it's true at a lot of media companies. I think it's it's very true across the board. I think there are a lot of people just really doing the best they can and maybe organizing more or adjusting how they work to be able to fit into this new normal, and, and yeah. I'm glad he pointed that out. The apartment uh only going out at 7 p.m to clap the healthcare workers he got to know yeah. the, the family parakeets a lot better than he had done he was even doing his training sessions with putting cones out which wasn't very popular with the missus and uh he also you know there was a there was a, a very poignant part of the interview when he talked about his mother-in-law who fought a 170 day battle against uh covid and sadly lost that fight and she was a great woman and uh she was uh, uh from mexico and there was a, uh, a nice um piece in the new york times about her after she died so and he said he reckoned they'd be about eight percent down by the end of this year i mean he was making a prediction there obviously nobody knows exactly uh what's going to happen even in the next three months but um it's well worth checking out on pr week Dot com. Uh, go to the coffee break section or the homepage, and you'll find the interview. Now, finally, why, why are we talking about fat bears, Frank? Why, why is that our news meetings dominated by them? Because they're back this year, and evidently there was great concern on the internet that um, the larger-than-life and growing uh, bears at Katmai National Park in Alaska uh, would not be back this year for Fat Bear Week, which is an internet sensation. Um, in which people, um, it's sort of like a bracket contest, like, like during the NCAA basketball tournament, in which people pick the bear that has, uh, it has put on the most weight before it goes into hibernation and people love it. People love a fat bear, I guess. What's not to love. Yeah. Um, just don't try and, um, when you encounter one, don't try and take them on because they're, Bone density and muscle mass is nine times that of a human, I learned last night from a, a uh, documentary about Yellowstone, um, which yeah, sounds like the sort and, of thing you... Yeah, sorry, Frank. I could go on and on about how, how fast polar bears are in the water and how quickly they yeah. can swim, too. Yeah, there you go. So that sounds like the sort of info you'd learn from NPR, Michael. So uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, keep up the great work. Um, Brilliant content. Look forward to seeing how the diversification of the content and um, audience and presenters goes. So uh, good luck with that. Well, thank you, Steve. And thanks, Frank, for having me. That was a pleasure. Uh, just before we go, we've got our PR Decoded conference coming up in a few weeks. It's from the 13th to the 15th of October. 
brilliant lineup of speakers. Uh, got some top keynotes. Uh, we've got Frank Cooper from BlackRock. We've got Darren Walker from the Ford Foundation. Essie Seng from Toms of Maine. Michael Roth, the CEO of uh, IPG, and loads and loads of others. And the Purpose Awards will be in sandwiched in the middle of that on the 14th of October. Um, if you need to get your PR Week Awards in, there's a couple of weeks left. You've got a, two more deadlines, the 6th of October and the 13th of October. The quicker you get them in, the less you have to pay for your entry. So there is an incentive there, but do get your best work in. Don't forget our 40 Under 40 event, virtual event on the 29th of October and our Hall of Fame, which will be on the 3rd of December. We will release the names of the this year's honorees. That's, that was delayed by a week. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week.